Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, political science, and culture. Today's topic is Oppenheimer, Babes, Bombs, and Beers. The movie Oppenheimer is a blockbuster, and I want to explore the science, the morality, and Christopher Nolan's filmmaking. We have three speakers for this podcast. The first will be Jeremy Bernstein, who is a work colleague of Oppenheimer at the Institute for Advanced Studies and is the author of the book, Oppenheimer, Portrait of an Enigma. I hope to learn from Jeremy about the scientific and engineering challenges that Oppenheimer faced for building the atomic bomb. And I want to hear some of Jeremy's personal anecdotes about interacting with Oppenheimer. Our What Happens Next culture critic, Darren Schwartz, will help us find the humor in the atomic bomb. And in preparing for this podcast, I heard that Billy Harriet, the assistant golf pro at the Lakeshore Country Club, where I'm a member, made a road trip from Chicago to Indianapolis just to watch Oppenheimer on the IMAX screen in its intended 70 millimeter. We're going to go deep into that experience as well. Let's now begin this podcast with Jeremy. When did you first meet Oppenheimer? I graduated from Harvard in 1951. I had a job as a Harvard cyclotron, which lasted until 1957, 56. And then I got an appointment at the Institute for Advanced Study as a postdoc. Well, at that very time, which was the spring of 1957, Oppenheimer came to Harvard to give some lectures. And I went to his lecture with the idea of saying hello. I'm going to be at the Institute next year. So after his lecture, I climbed on stage. And uh, he gave me a look of incredible hostility. I didn't know what to do exactly. I thought, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So I proceeded till I got next to him. I said who I was. And he transformed completely. He turned into an absolute ray of sunshine. And he said to me, Lee is going to be there, Yang is going to be there, the two Chinese physicists, and we're going to have a ball. That's what he said to me, we're going to have a ball. I thought I would go through a boiling coals for this guy. Lee and Yang would later earn the Nobel Prize for their contributions to physics. In your book, you describe Oppenheimer as weird and eccentric. Yet Oppenheimer's success depended on his convincing people to work with him. How did he pull that off? Well, because people want to please him, and people are very impressed by his facility. He understood everything immediately. And my interaction with him, I understand now why this guy was success, because how he managed people. Oppenheimer ran the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb. What were the physics and engineering problems that needed to be solved to build an atomic bomb based on nuclear fission of uranium? Uranium, like all other elements, comes in isotopes, which are versions of the same chemical atom but with different numbers of neutrons. And it turned out there was only one that was fissionable. And that was uranium-235. And that barely existed as a natural isotope. So one the first thing that they had to do is how do we take the uranium out of the mine, 
which is mainly uranium-238, and separate it so that we get enough uranium-235. This is a very complicated engineering problem. Then once they had uranium-235, there were all these questions about how much do you need, what shape should it be in. Just for clarification, there are two types of uranium atoms found in nature. The much more common one is uranium-238, that has three more neutrons in its nucleus than uranium-235. The reason that uranium-235 can be split easily is because its nucleus has an odd shape and is unstable. And when you fire a fast-moving neutron at its nucleus, it splits and then releases a lot of energy. How did Oppenheimer's team design the bomb? So what you have to do is you have to assemble enough uranium to make a critical radius and then you get a chain reaction. You did that basically by firing a shell of uranium into a target so that eventually you get enough uranium so that you have a fissionable arrangement. So all that had to be worked out. So it was a very complicated scientific engineering job, and they had this unbelievable assembly of geniuses working on it. How does the chain reaction work? The uranium nucleus splits. A certain number of neutrons are released. These neutrons penetrate neighboring uranium. Those uranium nuclei fission produce more neutrons. So it's a question of dimension. If you're talking about a sphere, the sphere has to be large enough, just a critical size that works. And they partly figured this out, theoretically, partly with experiments, and they did it. How did Oppenheimer assemble such brilliant minds to work on the Manhattan Project? There weren't very many of them. The theorists who worked on it were Hans Bethe and Weisskopf. And these are people who had been German refugees, and they did not need much encouragement. They were worried that Heisenberg was in the process of making a bomb for the Germans, they were very scared that the Germans would beat them at this race. Einstein sent a letter to Roosevelt encouraging that the U.S. work on the nuclear bomb because he feared that the Germans would get the A-bomb first. What progress were the Germans making on their nuclear program? The Germans never got anywhere. They couldn't even build a reactor. And that's largely because they relied on Heisenberg. And I always said of Heisenberg, he was a great physicist, but not a very good one. And uh, he was not really good at making a practical machine that functioned, whereas Enrico Fermi was an absolute genius at that. So the Germans were stuck with Heisenberg. Why were the Americans freaked out when they heard that the Germans were collecting heavy water? And what role does heavy water play in building an atomic bomb? In a reactor, you have to slow the neutrons down in order to get them to react. You slow them down by having them collide with what's called a moderator. You want a moderator which doesn't absorb neutrons, but which is massive enough so that it slows them down when they bounce off of it. And it turns out that heavy water is a very, very good moderator. So we used it, the Germans used it, but they never really quite made enough heavy water, and Heisenberg's design for a reactor was never very good. They never made a single reactor that worked. 
What is heavy water, and where do you find it? Well, it's available to a small percentage of the ocean, as far as that's concerned. It consists of two neutrons and one proton. That's what makes it heavy, because ordinary hydrogen is one neutron and one proton. How were they able to separate uranium-238 from uranium-235? To separate uranium isotopes, you make use of the fact that one isotope is more massive than the other. So if you get it moving in a circle, the heavier isotope will come to the edge of the circle and you can separate it that way. Let's see if I got this right. You heat uranium so it turns from a solid rock into a gas, just like melting an ice cube and turning into steam. Then you whip that uranium gas around in a circle really fast. And then the heavy uranium-238 moves to the edge of the circle and the lighter U-235 stays near the center. And then you simply grab the U-235 at the center. You got it. In the year 2000, I saw the Michael Frayn play called Copenhagen, which won the Tony Award for Best Play that year. And the play was set in Copenhagen in 1941, and it was based on a meeting between the famous physicists Bohr and Heisenberg. Bohr previously made major contributions on the structure of atoms and quantum theory, and Heisenberg at that time managed Hitler's nuclear bomb project. Heisenberg was desperate to find out from Bohr what he was hearing from the British and Americans on the Allies' nuclear program. And at the same time, Bohr wanted to find out from Heisenberg about the Germans' progress. Is this story true, and what happened? I have seen the play. I think much of it is true. I have had communication with the author of the play. There were different motivations. Bohr wanted to find out what the Germans were doing, and Heisenberg wanted to find out what the Allies were doing. And they did their best not to tell each other what they were doing. And that worked pretty well, although Heisenberg told Bohr more about what the Germans were doing than Bohr told Heisenberg what the Allies were doing. Because at that time, Bohr really didn't know. He only learned what they were doing when he escaped from Denmark and went to England. Of course, Heisenberg knew what the Germans were doing because he ran the project. But I have said that Heisenberg was a great physicist, but not a very good one. Was Oppenheimer a great physicist? Well, Oppenheimer was a theoretical physicist. He did a lot of work on different things. He jumped from one thing to another. The important thing that he did was to figure out how to form a black hole, which he did with a student They wrote a paper on the formation of black holes. And that would have won him a Nobel Prize, I think, if he lived long enough. At that time, it was not considered to be very serious. He himself paid no attention to it whatsoever. As far as I and I was concerned, it was a student exercise. But that was a paper I think that might have won the Nobel Prize because it's a clear outline of how you collapse a white dwarf star into a black hole. It's very clear. When Oppenheimer was in charge of the Manhattan Project, did he make contributions on the theoretical physics side? Or as you said, he was very quick. Was he good at figuring out which problems needed to be solved? and then managing the process by assigning the right resources and people to solve those problems in a timely manner? All of the above. For example, there came a moment when he had to appoint somebody 
to direct a theory group. And Teller very much wanted the job. Teller was not interested in the ordinary bomb. He was only interested in fusion. To keep him moderately happy, Oppenheimer created a small group of three or four people, which Teller operated on, and then complained incessantly. I met him once, and I decided that this man is impossible. If I have to go to work for this man, I will jump out the nearest window. Teller is famous as the father of the hydrogen bomb. Why was it impossible to work with him? Well, he was eccentric, and you know, and he worked on his ideas or no ideas. To give an example, Harvard physicist called Robert Karplus had taken a sabbatical at Berkeley and had told Teller about me, that I was somebody he might hire. We met in Washington. It turned out at the very time we were meeting was the very time he was testifying against Oppenheimer. I knew nothing about that. And the only thing he said to me was that he was glad to talk about physics rather than what he'd been talking about. But he suggested we come up to his suite and he would give me a lecture. He said, the way I prepare for a talk is I give it to somebody and you don't understand something, you interrupt me. So he started on this talk. It wasn't that I didn't understand it, I just thought it was extraordinarily interesting. I thought it was unbelievably without any interest. So I sat totally numb, <laughs> not saying a word. <laughs> but I later learned that was the very day he testified against Oppenheimer. I never heard from him again, which is just as well. Tell me about how Oppenheimer managed the Manhattan Project. Why was he the right man for the job? Everybody thought he was the wrong man for the job. Nobody understood why he was selected. He had no experience in anything involving practical physics. He was a theorist. But, you know, somehow he fitted right in. I guess he was a good mechanic. He knew how to talk to people. He knew how to ask the right question. He knew how to turn them on. There's a documentary entitled A Day After Trinity that interviews the major players in the Manhattan Project. Do you recommend that documentary film for this audience? A Day After Trinity? You must see this movie. If you see this movie, you'll understand a lot. The movie Oppenheimer begins with him working as a lab technician at Cambridge University. But your biography starts with his growing up in New York City. Why is Oppenheimer's youth important to understanding him? Well, it was very important. His father was a rather wealthy man, wealthy German Jew. And Oppenheimer was, of course, named Judas after his father. But he always said, if he was asked, what the J stood for, J. Robert, and he always said J was for nothing. That's what he said which is an interesting comment if it happens to stand for your father. He had a lot of trouble being a Jew. But I don't blame him because there was a lot of anti-Semitism at that time. There is a letter, which I think I have in my biography of Oppenheimer, a letter of recommendation to a British physicist saying not to worry about Oppenheimer's Jewishness, that he's not really too Jewish. It's an amazing letter. 
but it was a very anti-Semitic time. In fact, I had an uncle who went to Harvard as a graduate student in the 30s. And when I got accepted there in the 40s, he told me not to go. He said, it's a very anti-Semitic place, and you will not be happy there. Well, it turned out there were places where Jews could not go. A Jew could not get into a final club. But who the hell wanted to get into a final club? I never found it difficult to be a Jew at Harvard. In your book, you mentioned that Oppenheimer was accepted to Harvard as an undergraduate, but took a gap year because of an illness. The year he started at Harvard, its president adopted a Jewish quota, limiting all future classes to be up to 15% Jewish. Well, I don't know if he knew about it. I mean, I don't think there are any ads saying we limit the number of Jews to 15%. I think they just did it. Now, when I applied with my friend Henry Steiner in the 1940s, I don't know if there was still a quota. We were both admitted. We were both Jewish. I encountered a few anti-Semitic people when I was there. A few, not many. Do you think Harvard for the Jews in the 1920s is like it is for the Asians at Harvard today. There's a quota limiting the number of Asian students, but they do not face direct discrimination at the school by its faculty, administration, or other students? I think that's about right. There's a whole book written about anti-Semitism in the math department at Harvard, which is worth reading. They had an explicit policy, which was actually put into writing, that no Jew would ever get tenure. So, for example, Stan Ulam came from Poland and was a junior fellow at Harvard. He didn't get tenure. No Jew ever got tenure in the math department at Harvard until after the war. The book you referenced is A History in Sum by Steve Nattis and Xing Tung Yao. Why were there so many Jews working at Los Alamos? Part of the answer to that question is that a great many of the Jews were refugees. And refugees were not allowed to work on radar. And the atomic bomb was considered to be a less sensitive project than radar. For example, Hans Beta could not work on radar, but he was a very important figure in the atomic bomb. So that's why there were a lot of Jews at Los Alamos, because they couldn't work on radar. Next topic is how to keep military secrets like the A-bomb while employing so many talented scientists without proper vetting. The method to keep secrets at Los Alamos was compartmentalization. You could only work on a narrow problem. You couldn't talk to people working on different problems. And so if there was a leak with respect to any specific problem, it wouldn't give too much away to our enemies. There were Russian spies at Los Alamos, The most famous was the British physicist Fuchs. Why did the compartmentalization secrecy strategy fail? Well, in the first place, Fuchs knew everything. He was very, very central. He had a design for the hydrogen bomb. So he was able to tell the Russians our design for the hydrogen bomb, such as it was. He knew all about our design for regular nuclear weapons. Now, there was a second American whose name escapes me, i tell you how you could trace him. Roy Glauber was an undergraduate when he went to Los Alamos. He was the youngest member of the technical staff. He later became professor at Harvard, won the Nobel Prize. His roommate was the other 
Russian spy. That American spy was Ted Hall. In the movie, there's a discussion between Oppenheimer and Einstein about the question about whether a nuclear weapon explosion might cause an ongoing chain reaction that would destroy the entire planet Earth. In the film, Einstein asks Oppenheimer, how's that work going? And Oppenheimer responds that they calculated there's a infinitesimal probability, but not zero, that the nuclear explosion will end the world. Was this conversation based on fact? The question was raised long before Einstein had anything to do with it and had been worked on at Los Alamos. I think Hans Bader worked on it. People worked on it and concluded that it was not going to blow up. So whatever Einstein had to say about it was irrelevant. Einstein had been the central figure in physics at the turn of the 20th century. Einstein wrote his best papers on Brownian motion and the photoelectric effect in 1905, for which he received the Nobel Prize. Einstein retired to the Institute of Advanced Studies in Princeton, where you worked in the 1950s. What was Einstein's continuing relevance to physics when Oppenheimer was working on the atomic bomb? He thought that physics was on the wrong track, that quantum mechanics, while successful, was basically incomplete. There had to be a more basic theory, which he spent most of the latter part of his life trying unsuccessfully to find. He was looking for something that didn't exist, and he was very stubborn and wouldn't give up. Einstein questioned some of the key precepts of quantum mechanics. Did anyone follow him on this intellectual path? Nobody pays the slightest attention. If you teach a class in the quantum theory and you want to give a lecture on what we might call the philosophical foundations of the theory, you might talk about the einstein podolsky rosen paper, which was written in the early 1930s. And that's the last thing that he said about quantum theory. In fact, he wrote at least one paper in which he has the quantum theory completely wrong. He really checked out. When Einstein said God doesn't play with dice, what does that mean? And is that idea still considered relevant by leaders in the field? Quantum theory deals with probabilities. Quantum theory does not tell you what something is. It tells you how probable it is that something. And he felt that for a fundamental theory to ground itself on probabilities was simply wrong. So that's what he was talking about. Nobody cares. I might tell you what Einstein thought. But for our teaching a class in the quantum theory, I would not pay the slightest attention to what he thought because I don't care. The movie Oppenheimer delves into his private life in detail. Did you know his wife Kitty when he was your colleague at the Institute of Advanced Studies? I never liked her. I never thought she was terribly nice. I never understood it. But I've always felt it's not my business. And obviously she meant something to him. They got married and had these two children, they stuck together. In the book, you describe your first meeting at the Institute with Oppenheimer. I had just driven from my parents' house in Rochester. I was, all I wanted to do was to take a bath. And I went into the office, and the secretary said, Dr. Oppenheimer wants to see you. I told her, no, he doesn't. There's no reason he wants to see me. Oh, yes, 
He wants to see you. So I walk in to Oppenheimer's office, and he's, of course, impeccably dressed in one of these handmade suits that he had. And the first thing he says to me, he doesn't say hello or anything. He says, what is new and firm in physics? Thank God the phone rang. And it was his wife. He talked to her. And when he hung up, he said to me, it's Kitty. And I do those his wife. Then he said, she's been drinking again. I said nothing, and I excused myself and left. So there you are. What does that expression, new and firm in physics, mean? Well, he did not want to know a rumor. He wanted to know a new result which had been established. He wasn't interested in rumors. There are a lot of rumors, a lot of experiments that are half done, theories that are partly right. He didn't want to know. He wanted to know a true experiment, a true theory. What is new and firm, he wanted to know. When the movie begins, Oppenheimer is studying physics in Europe. Why were the Europeans at the forefront of the time? And how did the U.S. become a powerhouse in physics by the time of the Manhattan Project? You have excellent research in Europe. Oppenheimer and I. I. Robbie went to Europe in the late 20s, early 30s, and discovered that American physics was looked down on, and they decided that they were going to revive it. So Robbie created the Department of Columbia, and Oppenheimer created the Department on the West Coast, Berkeley and Caltech, and they did it. In the movie Oppenheimer, they show the meeting when Oppie meets President Truman in the Oval Office, and he tells the president that he has blood on his hands. What was that all about? Well, of course, I wasn't there. The person who has the most interesting things to say about it is Dyson. Uh, you should listen to Dyson. Dyson asks the question, what did Oppenheimer mean? And he comes to the conclusion that Oppenheimer meant was not that guilt for making it, but that they had such fun. Does it go back to that same concept that you mentioned earlier when you first discussed with Oppenheimer the chance to work together at the Institute for Advanced Studies, and he said, join me at Princeton at the Institute, and we'll have such a ball. The blood on my hands reflects his acknowledgement of the perversity that he had such a good time while making a bomb of mass destruction? Correct. Why did Truman take Oppenheimer's statement about blood on his hands so badly? Because he thought that Oppenheimer had no right to that attitude because it was Truman who dropped the bomb. Oppenheimer didn't drop the bomb. In essence, Truman was the one ultimately responsible for Hiroshima because he was the one who gave the direct order to drop the atomic bombs on the Japanese. Oppenheimer had... No right to that guilt. The Manhattan Project was an incredible feat in terms of applied science, engineering, and management under extreme war conditions. Oppenheimer effectively ran the project over two years with a multi-billion dollar budget. Do you think someone else could have done it besides him? No, nobody else could have done it. Because no one else had those qualities. It brilliance, the command of people, the command of language. He was totally unique. Thanks, Jeremy. I'd like to move to our second speaker, Darren Schwartz. Topic of the day is the new movie Oppenheimer. Right. 
What did you think? I thought it was excellent. It's a story that hasn't been told before and that needed to be told. And I thought it was well done, although definitely complex, which is a typical Christopher Nolan thing and maybe sometimes a criticism. Again, we can get into that. Christopher Nolan, what other of his films have you seen? I've seen a lot of them. Memento, Prestige, Interstellar, Inception, Dunkirk, and then his most complex movie that people have complained broadly about is Tenant. It's kind of a time travel movie that you wouldn't like. Talk to me about no one's use of time and story overlap, which may have resulted in some confusion in the audience. In Oppenheimer? Yeah. There are a lot of interlaced storylines. I personally had an issue because the theater I saw it in, the audio wasn't great. So I was missing some pieces of dialogue. If you go online, you search, like some people were totally confused. And in general, there is a criticism against Nolan being very confusing. One of the things that I read that he said is he tries to balance giving away too much information too early to the audience versus holding it back. So overall, I think he might have erred on the side of complexity a little bit, but it is what it is. Three hours. Too long? I think a lot of it could be cut out. I mean, we can talk about it, but again, the nudity, you got to cut that. I don't want to see him sitting there, smoking, naked, with his legs crossed. Could you do it in two and a half hours? Probably. Cillian Murphy plays Oppenheimer, and his performance is fabulous. Will he win the Oscar for Best Actor? I would imagine that he'll get nominated. I don't know who's competing against. Not only was he excellent and outstanding, he looks like him. I mean, it's amazing. And, I don't, and they don't really have to change a lot because I've seen that guy in other movies. I mean, he looks just like him. What did you think of Matt Damon's performance as General Leslie Groves? And will he get nominated for Best Supporting Actor? Probably get the nod. You know, who knows? Oh, that was great. Because I think you had to have the offset of the intellectual, somber, simmering guy with the belligerent army guy who's like, do it, go ahead, get it done. Emily Blunt played the part of his wife, Kitty Oppenheimer. I think that she did a great job. Overall, the women were not done justice in this film. The mistress, Jean, came off as kind of needy and whiny. And Kitty, you know, there was just a lot of focus on the fact that she was an alcoholic. And she just couldn't take life as a mother. And she couldn't just deal with things in general. It was constantly kind of having to catch her as she was falling. But at the same time, she was probably his biggest supporter. And she played a huge role at the end during the tribunal to see if he gets a security clearance back or not. The movie goes into detail about his personal relationships, the making of the bomb and the loss of his security clearance. This is the most important science movie of the year and one of the most important of the decade. And yet, none of the important science or engineering problems that were critical to making the bomb were examined in a serious way. Why do you think Christopher Nolan did this? I think they could have done so much more with explaining it. My criticisms of the film are they didn't really go deep enough on some of the relationship stuff and some of the emotions. And with the science, they didn't really give you the deep down on what the science was. The mumbo-jumbo in Oppenheimer reminded me of the film The Big Short about the mortgage crisis. We had our hero Margot Robbie explaining CLOs in a bubble bath in a funny way. She's a friend of the show, Margot Robbie. Yeah, for sure, friend of the show. And I asked my 12-year-old son after we left the theater, what'd you think? Can you explain to me what CLOs are? And he said, no, he actually didn't really understand her analysis. So I explained it to him, and he goes, well, why did they just say that? I mean, that's what they did here as well. 
Why do they just say it? Why do I have to make it seem like it's so complicated we can't even talk about it? So there would have to be a creative way to do it, which I think they kind of did in The Big Short, where there's just kind of like an interstitial and like a voiceover and says, this happens, this happens, this happens, and like, you know, text and something that would fit. Yesterday, in preparation for this podcast, we watched together the documentary film The Day After Trinity. This movie is about Oppenheimer and the making of the atomic bomb that came highly recommended by our previous speaker, Jeremy Bernstein. It included interviews with all the major players like Frank Oppenheimer, his brother, Nobel Prize winner Hans Bett, and Freeman Dyson. If I remember, your favorite part of the movie were the wagers placed by physicists about the results of the first trial test of the atomic bomb. For example, the physicist Fermi wanted to make a bet that the entire state of New Mexico would be incinerated. I think there's an also another bet, or they referenced that this could truly lead to the destruction of the atmosphere and the world in general. My favorite was that when the nuclear weapon went off, they interviewed someone who lived like 20 miles away, and they said, oh my God, is there an earthquake? And then he said, honey, you got to get up and see this. The sun is rising on the wrong side. Well, what I liked is they interviewed a woman, parents and her were driving her sister to college, and she said the bomb went off, and it was like as bright as the sun. And she said, and my sister said, what was that? And the interviewer said, well, why was that notable? And she said, well, my sister's blind. This documentary, The Day After Trinity, was really added to the movie Oppenheimer. It had a lot of additional information and added some fantastic archival footage. The movie was nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary Feature and won the Peabody Award. Yeah, I think it's a well-renowned documentary, and it's detail-heavy. I think it's the opposite of Oppenheimer. And I think you also learned about the man as well. When he was younger, he was quick and impatient and would terrorize the students. He was a bit irascible and kind of bossy. He would take colleagues to the ranch. They had a ranch in the remote part of New Mexico. That's, you know, that's, why, they up, that's why he ended up choosing Los Alamos. Yeah. There was no heat. We were freezing. He'd take us on these multi-day horse trips. No one could ride a horse. And it was cold and rainy. And Oppenheimer said, okay, fine, we'll just do it at night. Which then it goes, well, now it was just cold and difficult and rainy and dark. (laughs) They touched on this, which I think they touched on the film as well. He really wasn't political. And he started paying attention when the war in Europe started, you know, raging. And then when he became a little more aware, you remember what he read? He read Das Kapital and Lenin's work in their original language. The entire works of Lenin, which... I think that actually came back to haunt him. But he wasn't a zealot in any way. He was just trying to educate himself. And I think that definitely came back to bite him. He wasn't political. He was kind of naive. He was kind of like in his own scientific world. He became aware when the war in Europe was happening. And then when he got involved, he made this whole very patriotic switch. where He was actually wearing the uniform. What else did you learn in the documentary? They also called the bomb the gadget. I don't think that was said in the movie. And... The other thing that I liked about Jeremy's comments, it sounded like he didn't have the utmost respect for him as a physicist. He said, so you asked him about, I think, being a physicist, and he scoffed. He said, he said, I don't know, Oppenheimer was probably good at fixing his automobile. He's probably handy with a wrench. The job that he had at Los Alamos was much broader. He was a project manager. He was a project manager. And it combined two elements. It combined the theoretical physics side, but also an applied job in engineering. He had to actually make a bomb. And to make a bomb, sometimes you need a wrench. And you have to be able to think about this. 
And everyone was shocked that they picked this guy because he had no experience. At the time, it was the biggest science project in the history of the world, life to date. How do you think about Groves' decision to not only choose a leftist, but choose someone with no experience to do this? It seemed like there weren't a lot of other better options. Groves thought, okay, this is a guy that I can boss around. I can give him the space he needs, but still kind of, you know, hold the marionette. He's a skinny guy. He smoked. He didn't eat. He smoked, what, 10 packs of cigarettes a day. He was constantly smoking. Every, and they did this in the film, both the movie Oppenheimer and the documentary, and in photographs, he always has a cigarette in his hand. You're not going to believe it. He dies of lung cancer. He looked so old. It would make sense that it really accelerated after his security clearance because he was really dragged to the mud and the McCarthy stuff, and he really was villainized. This guy who was, a, was he on the cover of Life, you know, the other time of bomb, and then literally it all got taken away from him. They spent relatively little time before the war, but so much time after the war, particularly with regard to the security clearance issue. Do you think it was too much time spent on that? I mean, at the end of the day, who really cares that he lost his security clearance? I think it was critical to the movie because it talked about the fall of a giant. Whether it was right or wrong, he went from the pinnacle of a guy who saved liberty and maybe the world to this guy who were saying, wait a second, we can't trust this guy with America's secrets. He could be a spy. He's a bad guy. I mean, I think you had to tell the story of the scientists who came to his defense, those that kind of turned their back on him. It was where Kitty really shined. She goes toe-to-toe, word-for-word, with Jason Clark. And it was a hit job. He was sent in there by straws. It was a hit job. He doesn't do a very good job defending himself. He seems a little feeble. I thought General Groves, when asked if Oppie would meet the standards for security clearance, he said he did not, but that nobody could meet that standard. And I thought this was a real help for him. Is it Opie or Oppie? Opie is Andy Griffith's show. Ron Howard as his boy. It was called Opie. Oppenheimer, Oppie. I guess it matches the Oppenheimer, Oppie. Oppenheimer, a.k.a. Oppie, was dating Tetlock, and he got himself involved in a relationship with Kitty. She gets pregnant. He gets she married. was married, by the way. Okay, we got we to gotta queen that up. Divorce, marry Oppie, have the kid. They had a baby, and he came home one night, she was struggling. She's like, I'm not enjoying this. Next thing we know, there's a knock at the door. Someone answers the door. They give the kid. Kid's gone. We never heard from the kid. Now, I've had, you know, struggles. I've never given my kids away. Yeah. Yeah. I tried. I mean, you can't, who's going to take them? You know? <laughs> That's a good... Mm-hmm. Let's talk about choosing Los Alamos as a place to put 100,000 people on the fly. Can you believe the U.S. government chose a place with no water, no civilization. They patched it together, and it was barely functional. They said they had five bathtubs. One of the guys in the documentary said, you'd turn on the water in the morning, and worms would come out. And the other thing they said was, they were young people, and so they still wanted to blow off steam. But they didn't have a lot of store-bought liquor. They would make it. They had lab-produced alcohol, which was basically 200%, which is just 100% alcohol. It's like grain alcohol. They would just get ripped and then be back in the lab. Managing people, this is something core to who you are. What do you make of managing people, particularly these hotheads like Teller? 
Well, listen, I've never managed scientists. I don't think anybody in their right mind would put me in charge of scientists, <laughs> unless it was literally a science experiment. My perspective is you manage people, you collaborate, you get consensus, and you get buy-in when that's possible. And when it's not possible, you got to do the mission and you got to get everyone marching in the right direction. I think Oppie did. I mean, he literally built things by consensus. That's how he project managed. That seems like what his magic was. In three hours, we covered a lot of ground. Yeah. What'd they miss? The horrors of war were not really truly recognized or represented. The whole thing was about this race to save the world and to create this bomb. But the result of the bomb was you killed 250,000 people, just eviscerated them, you know, evaporated them. And so the only thing they really did is at the end, when Oppie was looking in the crowd, a few people kind of morphed into kind of skeletons. But what I think they should have done is something like show actual footage of the Nagasaki Hiroshima just flattened. We all remember from grade suites to the movies where the kids got bandages and like fleshes like melted off. I think that was kind of a huge miss. You know, it spent so much time, it missed how the science ultimately caused devastating results. 25 years ago in 1998, I was transferred to Tokyo and I managed 30 Japanese men and women, most of whom were older than I was. And, you know, I was there with my wife and we wanted to explore Japan. So I called a group meeting and I mentioned that I was going to visit Hiroshima to go see the bomb site. I said, anyone recommend any restaurants or thing to do in Hiroshima this weekend? And it became obvious that none of them had ever been to Hiroshima. So I said, oh, how many of you guys have ever been to Vegas? And all 20 raised their hand. So was there any resentment that you felt towards an American, specifically you? No. I asked about that. And they were sort of like, look, you know, we started it. We bombed you first. I get it. Really? Yeah. One of the big issues in Japan when I was there related to the high school and college textbooks that Japanese would learn in public schools that sort of whitewashed the Japanese war crimes, specifically the rape of Nanking, the abuse of prisoners of war. They recognized Pearl Harbor, but explained it was like justified. What other things, I mean, it's three hours. What else did they miss in this three-hour extravaganza? One of the things that was a miss, it wasn't really the content of the film, but Christopher Nolan shot this thing in 70-millimeter IMAX. Now, there are 80 IMAX theaters in the country. There's only 19 of the 80 IMAX theaters in the country that you could truly get the experience that he wanted you to have, which, again, seems like there's some level of arrogance there. The only theater I could get into was the Wilmette Theater. And the Wilmette Theater is one of these 75 to 100-year-old theaters. It's no technology. And then we had the problem. The sound quality was terrible. Should movie theaters have subtitles? No. It's ridiculous. Yesterday, we saw a day before Trinity. Yeah. Subtitles. No, we did subtitles because the documentary, again, there's a lot of, a lot of people. Or a lot of people coming in. Who's that guy? Who's that guy? We turned, I turned the subtitles Thank on. Thank you. You're welcome. So we could see who was talking. Even then, they didn't always put you it up. You should know that over time, I started just to read the subtitles along. 
Right. I think that's a problem because there's a split second that you're missing the visual. Otherwise, what you're following instead. it. But I don't miss a thing. I've noticed when I'm watching television, when I'm watching films, subtitles on. I needed subtitles for Peaky Blinders. Cillian Murphy also. How about that? You watch Peaky Blinders? And literally, it's a Cockney accent. You can't understand it. Blinders, subtitles for that. Beyond that, don't need it. Now, Oppenheimer, my experience, very similar. It was an Oak Park Theater, which was an awesome theater. And I think it was relatively newer. They refurbished it. It was a great experience, but it was very large and it was so echoey. Some people, you know, maybe they're a little older, they went back, they complained, and they gave them like headphones, like old school headphones. So that's a solution. When you can't hear a movie like this, it's so complex. I was actually very frustrated. I was very frustrated because I invested three hours. I heard 80% of the dialogue. I had to say, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? And people were looking at me like, what's wrong with this guy? Last week on Barbie, I asked you to compare Barbie to some other comedies. I would like to now compare Oppenheimer to either other war films or other science-like movies. So here we go. Oppenheimer versus Back to the Future. I think the flux capacitor was explained better. Better. I agree. At a detailed level that I was like, I get it. And I I knew somewhere in my head it doesn't exist yet. But it's coming. It's coming. Band of Brothers. Well, I think it's certainly represented the war better. It was, was one of the best television experiences ever. And I think it educated the world on what it was really like. And I think from that perspective, it did a way better job talking about the impact of the war from a soldier's perspective. Oppenheimer versus Dunkirk, both Christopher Nolan films. I would say that I think I liked Dunkirk better. I did too. And what was interesting was no one wanted to make that film from the perspective of the soldier and not from the senior leadership. And so it was very much the man on the ground. That was not the case here. So now let me ask you, how many total bombs have been tested or dropped? It's crazy. There's been 2,000 nuclear tests, of which the United States has done 1,000 on our own. It's caused tremendous radioactive damage to the environment. There was a nuclear ban treaty. The United States Soviet Union and others that agreed to it decided to limit the amount of above-ground experiments because the radioactive stuff got everywhere. Darren, anything else interesting you want to tell this audience? Well, I mean, one of the things that I found is that Canada was significant in the Manhattan Project, especially in the early stages of research and development. And more importantly, the Northwest Territories were a critical source of raw uranium. But I feel like Canada is always whitewashed. They get nothing. Darren, you are the What Happens Next film critic. But there are other film critics in the industry. You're not alone. What are you hearing from your peers, the other critics, about this film? One that stuck out to me is The New Yorker. One of the quotes was that his sense of self-importance made it seem like the movie could have been done by any journeyman director. That really there was so much going that it seemed like he was trying to accomplish for his own personal self-interest. I didn't agree with that, and I was actually really surprised. One of the points that they said in this article was that they could have done as good a job by just essentially copying and pasting a Wikipedia page about Oppenheimer. I think that's unfair. Yeah, I think it's unfair too. I don't know what this guy's deal was. 
How do you feel about the film all of a sudden changing into Straws, played by Robert Downey Jr., turning into some combination of this security currents issue and then Straws' nomination to be Secretary of Commerce? I found it a little confusing. I found it a little clunky. That part was black and white. There's like three storylines that were in lace, but I think it needed to be told because Straws was so petty because it led to, in a way, the destruction of a lot of the Oppenheimer legacy, which maybe only now with this retelling is coming back. So I thought it was really critical. On an actor note, I thought it was amazing for Robert Downey Jr. I think he gets a nomination. Nomination? Does he win Best Supporting Actor, Darren? Yes or no? Golden Globe, yes. And what I loved about him being in the movie is that this is a new career launch for him. He's not Iron Man anymore. Which, I mean, let's be honest, those are great movies, and that all kind of resurrected his career, got him on the map. Straws also gets upset related to a conversation between Einstein and Oppenheimer at the Institute. What happened? What we haven't talked about, and no, it's Einstein apparently is an idiot. That's Jeremy Bernstein's interpretation that he's, quote, checked out. Just checked out. Right. And he didn't really know what fusion or fission is or what's a bomb. And it seems like they put him at the Institute just to put him out to pasture. It's like running back in the NFL, three, four years. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Einstein Bagels closed in Glencoe. Your view? Well, they also opened and closed in Highland Park. I mean, nothing stays open in Highland Park. Once upon a bagel, the car wash, that's gone. Boom. So what are you going to do? I mean, maybe Bellavia, I don't know. But Einstein Bagels, I think... You know, I don't think there's a parallel at all between Einstein Bagels and Oppenheimer. Um, no, it's, but I, it's Einstein. But it's Einstein, yeah. So I, I think that's, that's really the only crossover. I want to take the nakedness seriously. When we were kids, people didn't get naked and talk in films. But in this movie, we've got Oppenheimer naked, albeit with his legs crossed, smoking a cigarette, having a serious conversation. Why? The only thing I can think of is there was maybe some theme that he was exposed or, you know, he was vulnerable. But that's just digging too deep. Like, who cares? Like, just cut the scene or put clothes on, man. I, I can't take it anymore. Come on. Where's the ashing? Is he ashing? I mean, that's dangerous. Come on. In the movie Oppenheimer, did you sit through it for three hours or did you get up and take a break? Truth be told because it's going to probably come out anyways, is I did doze off a bit. What? I do- a minute, six. <laughs> I was nudged. I woke up with a start, realized where I was, and then I did go up and get popcorn and a massive Coke slushie. And, yeah, I was probably gone for four minutes. So 10 minutes, yes. Six minutes sleeping, four <laughs> minutes on a food run. I usually end each episode on a note of optimism. What do you have to about as it relates to the use of atomic weapons on civilians? It's a tough one. It's tough to be optimistic. So I'd say that I'm optimistic that having seen the horrors and now for people to be reintroduced to that, that it will be a deterrent. And it will never Isn't it amazing that it. since Nagasaki, we haven't dropped a nuke? Anyone, no one's dropped a nuke? Yeah. Who would have thought? Thanks, Darren. We'll now be joined by Billy Harriet, the assistant golf pro at Lakeshore Country Club. Christopher Nolan 
used 70 millimeter film for Oppenheimer to watch it on an IMAX screen. There are only 19 IMAX theaters in the United States that can properly show this movie. Billy, you made the trek from Chicago to Indianapolis to see it. What happened? Yeah, so my childhood friends and I are big-time movie buffs. Made the decision about a month ago to see Oppenheimer and figured might as well go drive three and a half hours south to Indianapolis to see it on the big screen. And it was a fantastic decision. Is this the first time you've ever traveled for an IMAX theater? Yes, first time. IMAX is fantastic if there's a lot of action or special effects. But here with Oppenheimer, it's a serious drama. I don't get it. Shooting on 70-millimeter film is not a cheap thing to do. So Christopher Nolan had to have been up to something by doing it. We actually bought the tickets about a month early, and the theater was pretty much already sold out. So we were third row out of about 15, and you had to pretty much look directly up to see the top of the screen. I want to understand the logistics of your trip to Indiana. Was this going to be like a day trip? When did you leave? What happened? So it turns out Indianapolis is Eastern time zone, which, (laughs) I mean, none of us knew. So we thought we were getting down there, you know, early, get dinner, some drinks. Turns out we got there about 15 minutes early to a line of about 300 people. I know you get hungry. You're looking at a a three-and-a-half-hour drive and then the prospect of a three-hour film. What happened? You know, I think I had a tube of scorching barbecue Pringles and about six Modellos on the way down. Okay, you're late. You sit down in the third row. You're a big guy. Six feet five, 270 pounds. Were you comfortable in your seat? Yeah, you know what? They tried to fit as many people in that theater as they possibly could. It was a small, uncomfortable seat, and the people in front of us, they leaned back about seven inches, and I've got long legs, and these guys, he kept jamming it into my knees. It was very uncomfortable. They actually sold bottles of wine, so I had a Pinot Grigio, a bottle of Pinot Grigio. Let me get this straight. So after the six Modellos, you decided to take down some Pinot Grigio? Let's bring in our alcohol expert, Darren. What do you think about Billy's decision to mix Modelo with a Pinot Grigio. Well, what, what year was the Pinot Grigio? It might have been a 2024, yeah. I mean... It, Sounds young. It was young, yeah. Okay, we're ready for the big event, Billy. What did you think of the movie Oppenheimer? I thought it was an incredible movie. Definitely a dialogue-heavy movie with kind of one exciting scene, the test bomb. Overall, I thought it was a very informative movie, and I think everyone living in the USA should definitely see it. Darren and I were very disappointed with the audio quality in our rather pedestrian movie theaters. My wife had real trouble hearing some of that dialogue. How was the audio quality in the special IMAX theater? It was the best audio from any movie I've ever heard. Dialogue was perfectly crisp. The soundtrack was incredible. There's a scene where Oppenheimer and his girlfriend, Jean Tetlock, are having a very serious conversation and they show her oiled up and topless. What'd you think of that? Unbelievable. I would sit in there and watch it over and over again. Got it. Darren and I concluded that that scene was ridiculous and should have been cut. Do you agree? 
Yeah, had no importance. Zero importance. Personally, I wouldn't take it out, but uh, no importance to the movie, no. The movie ends. You and your two childhood buddies walk out. You're facing a three and a half hour commute back home. Billy, did you go straight home? You're probably starving because you missed dinner due to the Eastern time zone snafu. What'd you do? Well, at this point, it's 10 o'clock at night, yeah. So, White Castle. Great call. Yeah, Crave Box, 20-pack. So, you bought 20 hamburgers? We did a 20-pack between the three of us. I, we did not We did not eat them all. How many did you eat? You know, I probably had, I want to say around nine. So, Billy, you did your part and then some. It wasn't, it wasn't on you this thing didn't get finished. Yeah, I, I, had, I had more than the third, for sure. Yeah, and then, you know, stopped at the gas station, got gas. I ended up getting a couple scratch-off tickets. Billy, are you of age to be gambling? I am. Yo, you know what? I'm 25, so perfectly of age to get scratch-offs. And the deal was is I got a $20 scratch-off ticket. I won 40 I'm up 20 bucks, and, and she was allowed to sell them to me, but she said it was too late to cash them out. And I'm never coming back to Indiana ever in my life. I mean— ridiculous. So I give it to some guy with kids and a family. God, you're charitable? I know. Yeah. So that ended up, it made me feel really good. Billy, Mm -hmm. let's say the two of us are playing golf together. There's money on the line. And my first putt goes long, like three and a half feet past. Mm -hmm. Will you just give it to me? Mark it. Back to the ride home. I do have a question, Billy, just because I'm getting a real strong visual here. What kind of car was it that you were in? It was a 2023 Volkswagen Jetta Turbo 4 with a good driver. Were you in the back seat or front seat? Front seat. Billy should definitely be driving shotgun. I just have this visual of the seat almost all the way back, White Castle wrappers on you, maybe a few pickles, and you just snoring with some drool coming up. 100%. I mean, I think, you know, if Christopher Nolan... Was was in the car. I think he'd probably have the seventy millimeter out. I think he would have been very happy to know that a film buff guy is going to say, "I'm going to make the commitment and drive and make this trek." Well, Hunter, that's all. That's what it's all about. And I think he might even find some screen time for me somewhere in the future. Next topic is the visual quality of the film. Yeah, did the film look different in the IMAX theater? Was it bigger and crisper? What makes it special? Yeah, so with the 70-millimeter film, if you see it on a non-70-millimeter theater, it is completely cut down. They pop a CD in and call it a night. The image quality was more HD than anything you've ever seen in your entire life. There were the scenes with the atoms flying around and... Billy, just to confirm, mm-hmm. are you referencing the scene where Oppenheimer was a lab technician mm-hmm. at Cambridge and he was dreaming of abstract math? And Christopher Nolan used a meteorite shower as a metaphor for his thinking process? Absolutely, yeah. So that, just as an example, that scene was probably one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. Our film critic, Darren Schwartz, fell asleep for around six minutes during Oppenheimer when he was sober. You had six beers before showtime. Did you fall asleep during the film? I was locked in. I was eyes wide open the entire time. I don't think it would have been possible. I really don't. I mean, with the seat in front of me jamming into my knees and the strength of the audio in the room and the brightness of the big screen, I don't think it was physically possible for me to sleep. 
if I drank six beers, there's no way I could watch a three-hour film without going to the bathroom. What happened with you? Uh, yeah, definitely broke the seal early on the trip down. This theater was, you were not getting out. It was go to the bathroom on yourself or, I mean, you, I don't think I saw a single person leave the theater. It was physically impossible to do so, so. Billy, I end each episode with a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about as it relates to IMAX and the use of 70 millimeter film? Personally, I hope nothing really good comes out on it because I am not doing that again. What? I thought this was a trip of a lifetime. No, I, it would oh, 100% worth it. Wait a minute. My impression is this was a great bonding experience with your best friends. You got into the VW Jetta. You had the barbecue Pringles, the Modellos, the Pinot Grigio, the White Castle, the excitement of winning the scratch off, the time zone change. This was hugely memorable. So why only one time? I, you know what? I guess you're right. But it has to be something that would blow my socks off. Oppenheimer 2. You know what? I mean, I don't think they need to do that. Barbie the sequel. No. No, definitely not. So, so another 70 millimeter film that Christopher Nolan did was Dark Knight. And that's, that's an all-time movie. What if they were showing Dark Knight on IMAX one night only? Yes, I would make the drive. So once in a lifetime turns into twice in a lifetime. Yep. Yeah, you're right. You know what? I would. Yeah. Thanks to Jeremy Bernstein, Darren, and Billy Harriet for joining us today. If you missed last week's show, check it out. Last week's podcast was entitled Barbie is the Bomb. Global tickets have already exceeded a billion dollars. This podcast included four speakers. The first was Sophia Saker, who was an intern with What Happens Next, Sophia recently graduated from Brown and we're working for a Hollywood talent agency after the writer's strike is over. Her talk centered on why Barbie has become a cultural phenomena. Our second guest was Kay Heimowitz from the Manhattan Institute and the author of the book, Manning Up, How the Rise of Women Has Turned Men Into Boys. Kay discussed the battle of the sexes in both Barbie land and the real world. My sister, Debbie Warren, spoke about her graduate school application, essay to Northwestern's Kellogg School, about collaboration when playing with Barbie dolls as a kid. Our final speaker was our film critic, Darren Schwartz. I now want to make a plug for next week's podcast with Aaron Tang, who is a law school professor at UC Davis. Aaron is the author of a new book entitled Supreme Hubris, How Overconfidence is destroying the court and how we can fix it. Aaron thinks that the court should be humble in its rulemaking and do the least harm instead of solving society's problems. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, what happens next and sixminutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining me. Goodbye.